Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Um, and if you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Scriptures from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Good morning, Grace Point. Wasn't that a downer to start with? Paul, thanks so much for reading it. Um, I'm going to tell you, that's going to be just a small portion of what we're going to cover today. I know I covered some of that actually last week when I was encouraging, admonishing, teaching the fathers that were in the room. But today we're actually going to focus more on an obscure passage in the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, I'll explain why in a little bit. But before we begin today's study, please join with me as I open in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this opportunity to stand with this congregation in the brief study of the Scripture before us. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, and that you would speak through me. Let nothing said be from me or of imperfect understanding. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Today's sermon was not going to be on 2 Timothy. Today's sermon was actually going to be on things you probably heard in church but maybe didn't understand. Wouldn't that have been fun? But after last Sunday, I went home and kind of was relaxing a little bit, started to focus on this weekend's sermon, and I came to the realization I just didn't have the, the energy for it. And so I went to bed that night, and I have to admit, I've wondered... Has God ever spoken to me? I can tell you now, yes, he has. I know this because at 2 o'clock in the morning when I got up, as I tend to do anymore in my old age, um, I did what I had to do and I went back to bed. But I didn't go into a deep sleep. I went into a dream state. And from 2 o'clock until 5.15, I heard a voice over and over again. There was no picture, there was no scenery, none of your faces appeared in my dreams. But I heard over and over again, 2 Timothy 4.13. Got to be honest, I didn't know if there was a chapter 4 in 2 Timothy. I didn't know if there was a verse 13, but there is. I found that out at 5.15 that morning. Because when my wife got up to get ready to go to work, I jumped out of bed. 
I ran out to where my Bible sits on the table, and I opened it up, and I read it. And at first glance, it wasn't a terribly remarkable verse. But then I read into it, and I read the entire book of 2 Timothy over again. I've read four different versions of 2 Timothy. I've listened to sermons this last week done by very skillful men. And none of them have really touched on 4.13 like we're going to talk about today. So, I'm a little bit of a historian as well. I enjoy history. I like to know what was going on at the time, you know, when something comes my way. And I've been blessed. I've been taking some seminary classes, and the last one I completed was History of Christianity, Section 1, which starts from basically the crucifixion of Christ and takes us to um, almost the Reformation. So that period that I studied actually covers Second Timothy very well. And I've got to tell you that in 18, well, 18, A.D. 64, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus. This guy was a part of the Roman Senate, okay? He was like our senators. He's upper class. He's a person who's in the know. He's rubbing shoulders with the people who make the rules. And what he wrote in A.D. 64 is this. But all the endeavors of men, all the emperor's largesse, all the propitiations of the gods did not suffice to allay the belief that the fire had been ordered. And so to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations, who are commonly called Christians. Christus, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Check for the moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome, that receptacle for everything that is sordid and degrading from every quarter of the globe, and there finds a following. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed. Then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson because as because of the hatred of the human race. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or drove about in his chariot. All gave rise to a feeling of pity, even towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment, for it was felt that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. That's history. That's not in the Bible, which also is history. It's truth. But this is another account of what was going on in A.D. 64 and afterwards. Nero was in charge. Nero was self-serving. His mother got him the job, by the way. And you know what he did with her? He put her on a boat out in this big lake and hoped that it would collapse because it was designed to fail. She didn't down, drown. She didn't die. 
So he ended up having a bunch of his guards go in and attack her and kill her. This guy thought he was an actor, thought he was a musician, thought he was a leader. He was vain, he was self-centered, he wanted what he wanted, and honestly, what he saw about the city of Rome was not enough tribute to him. The Jewish quarter, or the ghetto, actually sits, if you've ever looked at a map of Rome or have been to Rome, if you find where the Colosseum is, and if you were to go just slightly to the south and off to the east, that is where the Jewish ghetto or you know, living area was for most of the Jews. He didn't want that there. He wanted to have another auditorium built that had his name on it. That's where the fire started. Now, we've heard maybe that you know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. No, it didn't happen. He was actually, well, first of all, there were no fiddles at that time. They didn't show up for about another thousand years. But he wasn't even in town at the time. He was in a neighboring community playing on his lyre, another stringed instrument. But it doesn't mean he didn't have the fire set. What I'd like you to do, please, would be to open up your Bible. I want you to follow along. And I'm not going to read it word for word. I'm going to take some paraphrases as we go through the book and this is Paul's last letter. I'd like you to consider the counsel that he gives to Timothy and to us. Picture this. It's A.D. 67, three years after the fire, three years after Peter was crucified. Tradition says that Peter didn't want to be crucified upright as Christ was, but was crucified upside down. That's church tradition. No one's absolutely certain, but we do know that he was crucified in A.D. 64, the year of the fire. We know that Nero has said that it was the Jews that went ahead and started the fire. The Jews are responsible. Find the Jews. Or I'm sorry, not the Jews, the Christians. But the Jews actually conspired with many of the Romans. A lot of people were arrested because they confessed, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in the teachings of Christ. I heard him. I saw him. I was there. I heard from the apostles. It's true. So they were crucified or put to death in other ways. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. You suffocate. Being torn apart by wild animals, wild dogs, isn't any better. Maybe even worse, though, is being tied to a cross or something similar, a pole, having wood stacked around your feet and being burned alive. Because that's what Nero did. Anyway, three years later, imagine yourself in Rome. You're somewhere between the palace and the Colosseum. It's not a long distance just about lunchtime, and you're walking towards the Colosseum. I can tell you that most of the shops are closed. There's rubble in the street from the fire that hasn't been cleaned up. Yes, there's some new construction projects going on. Nero's got this, this new thing that's going up in the old Jewish slum. But there's just not a lot of money. People are starving. It's a rough time. As you walk closer towards the Colosseum, however, you're hearing cheers. 
there's amusement going on. There's something going on in the Colosseum. You can hear clapping. You can hear the roars of animals, bears, lions, dogs. You can hear the cries. Christians are being killed for the entertainment of the crowds. Now, most of the Romans at that time, they didn't look at Christians as being any better or worse than anybody else. But they were told they were criminals. They were convicted. So, you know, we all kind of, yay team, when the bad guy gets it, right? Except the bad guys weren't bad guys. They've been blamed for the fire that gutted Rome. I've already said that it was probably started on order by Nero. We don't know. Let's walk past the Colosseum. Just a couple blocks down the road, so to speak, there's a prison. It's the infamous Mamertine Prison. It's used for Romans. It's not used for people from Judea. It's not used by, you know, people who came from other countries who were captured and enslaved, and serving, trying to make a living in Rome. No, this is only for the Romans. Inside it, there sits a man. He's in chains. And it's Paul. He's in a damp and cold cell. It's very small. There's almost nobody that'll visit him now. When he had been in prison just a few years before, he didn't have that problem. He was on house arrest. People would come from all over to see the guy who spoke about Christ. He had people that came to listen to him. But now that he's in chains and he's in the Mamertine prison, he's a convict. And to be seen with him is to be guilty by association. The only one that we see that truly shows up on a regular basis is this doctor guy that we read about also in the New Testament. His name is Luke. He shows up to, to give comfort and maybe even medical advice. We don't know. But Luke is there. Paul knows that he's not going to be allowed to leave Roman custody. He knows what happened to Peter. He can hear the screams from what's happening just down the road. The only questions in Paul's mind are how and when. He knows his days are limited. So he sat down and he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And that's why we've got the second Timothy letter that we're going to cover today. Um, in it, he pours out some pretty heartfelt feelings. And I'll be honest, when I, when I started to do this practice this morning, I couldn't get through it. Um, so if, if I stumble for a little while here, I hope that you'll work with me on it. It's quite moving to me. We know that Paul had been working with Timothy for a number of years and that he's hoping that Timothy will continue where he leaves off. So here's a, a summary. If you start with, with me in chapter 1, there's this usual introduction that Paul gives in, in his letters. He identifies that he's a slave to Jesus. Now, slave doesn't mean as we commonly see it. He's working for Jesus. 
He's putting forth his best effort for Jesus. He's preaching the gospel as Jesus shared it with him. So that, that's the, the meaning of that. He also writes that I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. And while Paul has often written letters with endearment, he's never written to my dear son. Such is the relationship that he has with Timothy. They've gotten that close. And we can understand his attachment. He's grown to love him as a father does a son. Paul continues, I thank God for you. I constantly remember you in my prayers, and I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted. I will be filled with joy when we're together again. That tells us that Timothy felt the same way. He had a lot to learn from this father figure, and he was grateful for the teachings that Paul could share. Now, let's, I want to talk about Timothy just briefly for a moment, because this isn't really included in the materials either. Timothy came from mixed parents. We know that father was Greek. We also know that his mother was Jewish. Timothy's teachings from a very young age came from his grandmother and from his mother. The strongest Christian influence in his life, his early life, came from his mother and his grandmother. So please, women, you have an important role. Look what it did for Timothy and for Paul. Men are, as I said last week, incomplete, and we need you. We can do what we can do, but we really need your help. So we know that earlier, Timothy approached uh, Paul and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be preaching to the Jews. I'm going to be sharing the gospel with them, and yet many of them are not going to accept me. And so because of this, Paul actually assisted with the circumcision so that Timothy would be accepted amongst the Jews. He wouldn't do that with Titus, but he did do it with Timothy. There is a reason. It's for acceptance, to get him in the door, to give him that validity that was needed to convert the Jews to Christianity and to share the message. We see a transition in 1.6. As Paul begins to put some responsibilities on the young pastor, he reminds Timothy to remain faithful and indeed to eagerly de develop or fan the flames of the spiritual gifts that God has given to him. When did that happen? I mean, we've seen a laying of hands here when our elders and our pastor come forward and they bless people as they go out in different walks. That's meaningful. That's significant. It has a great influence on the ability of people to succeed where human efforts fail. God works through our elders, our pastor, and those who believe in him. So this happened, this, this set of gifts that were given to Timothy occurred when Paul laid hands on him. We see that. Paul teaches Timothy that he should not be timid or fearful, but live in the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. Yeah, when you're new in the pulpit, it's scary. 
and you may not know as much as some of the other folks that are in the congregation. You may have differences of understanding. I'm standing in a room right now where I can see at least two former pastors, and don't think that that's intimidating in the least. It's horribly intimidating. I have half a feeling that I may get accosted afterwards and told I took something out of context. But as I prayed at the outset, I hope that all that comes from my lips is from God, not from me. Or I hope you forget anything that I say and only remember God's teachings. Paul calls Timothy to follow his example, even if it means Timothy would be imprisoned or worse. Timothy, like Paul, was chosen by God to be a preacher and a teacher of the gospel. They weren't chosen because they deserved this honor, but because God had planned it from before the beginning to show his grace through Christ Jesus. Paul made clear that he was entrusting, just as God had, this responsibility to Timothy. Now, we're going to move up to chapter 2, verse 3. Paul outlines how Timothy needs to demonstrate that he's a faithful servant to the teachings of others of the good news. Paul uses examples that Timothy would be sure to understand and that we can all relate to, to endure suffering along with Paul as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. This is likely an example to address in a subtle way how Timothy had gotten caught up in some minor church issues that were addressed in 1 Timothy. Timothy had been frustrated by gossip and petty issues, and Paul tried to counsel him as a father would a son through that. He continues to say, athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. An obvious allusion to the need to stick to the gospel message and the Old Testament teachings. And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Now, you can look at that and say, okay, what are the fruits that the hardworking farmers are to get? It seems like the emphasis is on the fruits. And actually, it's the other way around. The emphasis is, if you want to gain converts, if you want to get the message out there, you're going to invest a lot of energy. You're going to put in a lot of work. Planting seeds where the word has never been before heard. Knowing that many are going to fall upon hard soil or amongst the weeds. In order to cultivate a good crop, you've got to put in a lot of effort. And the farmers that are here in the room today can speak to that better than I can. But what's important is the great harvest, those who come to Christ and the Father. So Timothy is counseled to work hard so that he can present himself to God and receive his approval. One who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. I've heard this verse. The kids that are going through Awana or have been through Awana learn that one. A good workman is not afraid. Yes, I see some lips moving out there. There's a couple of youth that can, can preach it better than I can. And thank you for that. God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with an inscription of God's truth. The Lord knows those who are his. And all who belong to the Lord must turn from evil. This is the foundation of Christianity. Christianity. God knows who are his, 
God does not want anyone lost. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But he knows who will accept him and who will have a hardened heart. Paul uses several examples to drive home that Timothy should avoid triviality and should keep himself pure so that he will be God's special utensil for honorable use in every good work. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. We all, in our childhood or in our young age, pursue things that interest us. Maybe not the things that will benefit us, but the things that inspire or excite us. And Paul is telling Timothy, keep your eyes on the ball. Focus on the teachings of Christ. Focus on those things I've taught you, that the things that your mother and your grandmother have taught you. Focus on the truth. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. We can read as Paul counsels on how to overcome stubbornness and foolishness in others. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who will oppose the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they've been held captive by them or by him to do whatever he wants. In other words, don't hate the lost, don't be angry at them, but show mercy to them. Understand. They're lost. They have not seen the light. Be patient. Teach. Know your apologetics. Be able to explain why you believe what you believe. Excellent fatherly advice. In chapter 3, the verses that Paul read for us in verses 1 through 5, he starts to share his insights to the coming days, the end times, and the rebellion against God. Fatherly wisdom is seldom so clear and straightforward. We see in 3.1, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Timothy, stay away from people like that. Isn't that great advice for us today? Paul reminds Timothy... You, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil people and imposters will flourish They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. You, Timothy, must remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know that they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Another verse that I used last week, 
All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Last week I said, as our children and raising them must be a good work. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the, word, or the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. We're in an unfavorable time. The word of God does not like to be heard by many people. They'd rather talk about anything else, the newest games that you can play, sports, whatever. But this is the time that we have to be prepared and we have to have these conversations. We need to tell people about how to be saved, how to have a future in heaven rather than an eternity in hell. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. I'm sure I'm not tickling very many ears today, but that's okay. That's not what I was told that night. I was told 2 Timothy 4.13. People will reject the truth and chase after myths. Keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has for you. At this point, we see another transition. Paul, it seems, takes stock of his own words of wisdom and ponders his current situation. He continues writing to Timothy with, As for me, my life has already been poured out as a drink offering to God. The time of my death is near. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize that awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return, is mine. That's a sobering thought. My time is near. He knows it could be any day. Could be any minute. He says, Timothy, please come as, you so as soon as you can. Others have deserted me, and I've sent some to Galatia, Dalmatia, and Ephesus. Luke continues to be with me, but I would like for you to bring Mark for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Yes, this is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So it's kind of interesting to think that Paul has had an influence on two of the Gospel writers in addition to the works that he himself penned. There's even a good possibility that Luke had written a number of the, the letters that Paul had dictated, but no one can be certain of that. It's just some differences in writing styles that lead some people to believe that. And here's my verse. 
When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas, and also bring my books and especially my papers. It may seem relatively unremarkable. We know he's in a damp and cool prison, probably. Uh, maybe that's why he needs his coat. I think there's more to it. I really do. If you were to go back to 2 Kings chapter 2, I think you'll find what I found. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha to Gilgal. I'm not going to read all of it, but we've got these two people, a mentor and a student, that are walking together. And we know that Elijah is about to be taken to heaven. Now, Throughout this, there's three different instances where Elijah says to Elisha, I've been told to go here. You stay. And Elisha has said, no, wherever you go, I will go. You lead and I will follow. They crossed over the Jordan River, and Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. In other other words, Elijah is turning this over to God. If God allows Elisha to see Elijah taken, then God is saying, Okay, I will give you a double portion of Elijah's spirit. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, And he saw Elijah no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. We have Elisha who saw Elijah as his father. There was a cloak that got passed from one to the other. And in 2 Timothy 4.13, we see where Paul is asking Timothy to bring his coat. Is it because of the cold and the damp? Or is it because Paul's at the end of his life and he knows it, and he's passing along the mantle of his authority and responsibility to this young pastor? I see a parallel. I also suspect that if Timothy had asked and Paul were capable of giving it, that a double portion of Paul's spirit would have been given unto Timothy to aid him in his teachings. I have to tell you, I don't believe for a moment that Paul needed his books or his writings, the papers. There weren't many people that would have been in the prison. 
He was talking with Luke. That was the only person that regularly came to see him. Paul was a Jew amongst Jews, we were told at the beginning. He knew the Old Testament probably better than most people of his age. We also know that Timothy had been taught from his grandmother and his mother and through Paul. There would have been little that they really needed to dig into in the Old Testament teachings. The New Testament writings, the things that maybe Paul would have jotted down, he would have gotten from firsthand experiences, talking with Jesus, being with Peter, being with others that had been there when Jesus walked the earth. It's highly doubtful to me that Paul would have needed these documents to refresh his memory. It all would have been firsthand to him. I think the intention could have possibly been to say, Timothy, I give these to you. I entrust these to you. They were given to me so that I could pass them along to you. You will walk the earth after I pass. Paul finishes his letter with the following. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death, from the mouth of lions, is what some versions say. So... He escaped the Colosseum once. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. No matter what comes, Timothy, I'm good. I know where I'm going. All glory to God forever and ever. Now, Paul closes as he typically does with the request that his greetings be passed along to Christians that he knew. And as a final request... Paul encourages Timothy to come before winter comes. I don't think Paul was really thinking he was going to last that long. That's why he said, hurry. I heard a, a pastor this last week say that in this last sentence where Paul says, may the Lord be with your spirit and may his grace be with all of you, that the word that was used for grace could also have another meaning. Now, I went and looked, and I couldn't find it, but that doesn't mean that I was diligent and, and searched everything. The meaning that this other pastor ascribes to the word is thank you. He's thanking Timothy for walking with him this number of years, doing all that Paul is expected of him. So here's the end of Paul's story. We know that he was put to death by Nero's order in A.D. 67. So this letter was written in A.D. 67, maybe A.D. 66. But we know that he was put to death in 67. He was beheaded. Okay. Definitely the fastest of the ways that we've talked about to go. The less stressful, maybe. Another gift of grace from God. We don't know for certain that Timothy arrived prior to the execution. But in the past, we know that when Paul called to Timothy, he responded promptly. 
So there's pretty good likelihood that they found comfort in one another's presence one last time. And that Paul was able to give some good fatherly advice. Now, what can we take from this epistle? What can we take from this letter from Paul to Timothy? How can we apply Paul's wisdom in today's world? I think we only need to look at Paul's acceptance of mortality and finding peace that he had listened to the voice of Jesus. After all, he was a follower of Christ. He was a slave to Jesus. And he followed him with the strength of faith that saw him through being rejected by many, through being stoned and left for dead, through his disagreement with Peter when he went astray, through the planting of many churches, and the defending of the scriptures and gospel. Paul was cast overboard in a violent storm, survived the first imprisonment in Rome. He got to meet with Mark and Luke as well, and I'm sure he influenced their writings. And we would all do well to accept our own mortality and to continue to proclaim the good news and the teachings of the Bible. To pass along our personal heritage is not a bad thing. Tell your kids where you came from, what your beliefs are. But to pass along the heritage of our God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ Jesus, so much better. There's a song that I've enjoyed listening, you know, about how you're supposed to make a name for yourself. You know what? If they don't remember my name when I'm gone, that's cool. All they got to do is remember Christ Jesus. And I'll be good. Our youth and our neighbors need the encouragement that we can give, that God is on his throne, and that he offers eternal salvation to those who believe in and accept the teachings of Christ Jesus. These are the truths that Paul taught the Jews and the Gentiles of his age and implored Timothy to continue doing. We can do the same. Please join me as I close in prayer. Dear God, Please strengthen our resolve. Help us to be like Paul and like Timothy. Allow us to form friendships that will deepen our faith and our understanding of your plans for us. Please help us to discern those truthful teachers from those that just want to tickle our ears. Walk with us as we struggle to overcome our fears as we talk with our friends and family. May your name last forever. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.